1: Welcome to New Books in Political Science. Today, I have the great pleasure uh, to talk with Isaac Martin, who is the is the author of Rich People's Movement: Grassroots Campaigns to Untax the One Percent. Isaac, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank
0: you. Thanks so much for the the podcast.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I think it's um, you know it's uh, I talk to a lot of authors and a lot of uh, authors have written very interesting books, but this is a very um, very readable, very accessible book, despite the fact that you're telling some deep histories. Um, those histories are told in such an uh, uh, accessible way. I, you know, For that reason, I, I really enjoyed it. Now, I've read the book, and I know some things about you, but maybe we can start by allowing you to introduce yourself a little bit more, what your background is, where you are now, and where this book fits into your... You know, where, where you've been. Sure. So I'm a professor of
0: sociology at the University of California, San Diego, and I've spent the last oh, 10 years or so doing research in one way or another on taxation and on the politics of taxation in the United States, uh, in the course of which I got really interested in the question of why Americans from time to time get really exercised about our taxes. These sort of tax protest movements that look back to the Boston Tea Party and Talk about taxation as an imminent threat to the American way of life. It turns out these these movements have been around for a very long time. So I got interested in trying to understand better where movements like this come from. And I uh, spent several years digging around in libraries and archives on the trail of some of the activists who made these protest campaigns against taxation come together. And the result of all of that was, uh, was this book.
1: Yeah, and, and the book is great. It, you know, it um, has both the sort of the background of a, uh, of a historian. I don't know how much historical training you have, but the, the, the historical side of it is so interesting. The social science side of it is interesting. It, I think, speaks to both what uh, the field of sociology is, is thinking about these issues, but also you incorporate a lot of political science as well. Before we get to the meat and meat of the, the book let's let's just talk about the title you have a very provocative title to the book um, but it's not altogether obvious what you mean by rich so who are the rich in the title of the book which is again rich people's movement
0: the the I should tell you a little bit about the background of the title and then I'll answer the question about who the rich are this this title is intended as a kind of t- to pay homage to really a, a, a classic book in sociology and political science called Poor People's Movements by Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward which was a book that made a big impression on me during my my undergraduate and my graduate education and Piven and Cloward tell a variety of uh, historical stories about movements on behalf of poor people uh, including movements led by poor people to to protest against their poverty and, and demand social change and, and more resources from the government. Um, so I started thinking about the movements I was interested in as kind of the, the mirror image of that. These were these were protest campaigns that used the same kind of grassroots tactics, but the people on whose behalf they claimed to speak were people who already had a lot of resources, and, and in that sense they were, they were the rich. The, the way I'm using rich in, in the title and in Analytically, in discussing the concept of a rich people's movement is to refer to the people on whose behalf the movement speaks. So we can think of these as movements on behalf of the rich. They are also, to some degree, movements by and of relatively wealthy people. That is, they had a lot of pretty wealthy people participating in them. But they also had a lot of people participating in them who, who we might call middle class, who uh, had... Um, middling incomes who maybe had a little bit of wealth but were not among the wealthiest. Um, rich here, as I use the term, is a, is a relative term. So I'm, I'm not talking only about millionaires. Uh, I don't have any fixed numerical threshold I'm using to designate who counts as rich for the purpose of designating what's a rich people's movement. Instead, I'm looking at movements that draw a line across the income distribution or the wealth distribution and say we're going to campaign for policies that benefit everybody above that line.
1: And and in telling the story, sort of the the occasional um, uh, emergence of of one of these social movements uh, in support of of these objectives, um, one of the things you do is is you use this phrase policy threat and it it sort of appears in the early early part of the book and it, it seems to um, uh, be one of the, the theoretical pieces of, of what you're working on. So, how do you define this this term policy threat? And and what role do policy threats play in in setting up your analysis in later chapters?
0: The concept of a policy threat is is one that I really learned from political science, and especially from the work of Andrea Campbell, whose uh, amazing study how policies make citizens really influenced my thinking early on about the politics of fiscal policy. Uh, It's a wonderful book about the politics of Social Security. And one of the things that she documents in that book is the way that threatened cuts to Social Security actually provoked seniors to mobilize and helped to cultivate a kind of activist senior citizen identity among older Americans. Policy threat, as I use the term in this book, refers to any public policy that uh, is perceived to threaten the economic security of a substantial constituency. And the policy threats that I'm focused on because it's a book about movements on behalf of the rich are policies that are perceived to threaten the economic security of the rich. The the reason that a policy threat is an important concept for me is that policy threats seem to work differently from other kinds of events that can harm people's economic security. if you think about the, the life of a rich person in, in a competitive market economy like the one that we have, of course they're, they're, their life is subject to all kinds of unpredictable income shocks, um, ranging from downturns in the, in the stock market to broader uh, events such as recession, simply to the, the uh, perhaps the intervention of a new competitor in whatever line of business they happen to be in, in most invested in. Uh, but policy threats are different. Uh, and have different effects from these other kinds of income shocks, precisely because they come from policymakers, and therefore they provide a convenient focal target of blame when you experience economic insecurity as a result of a stock market downturn. You might not know which buyer or seller, uh, to which of the many thousands of buyers or sellers, you want to sort of picket or protest. Um, It can be very hard to pinpoint blame. But when Congress does it, um, it's much easier to sort of construct a narrative that says the politicians did it, the politicians are to blame, and and that really facilitates collective action. So policy threats are important for my purposes because they they have some properties that make them really conducive to collective action.
1: And let's talk about some of the the real interesting characters of the book. Um, One of the first is J.A. Arnold. So who was J.A. Arnold, and what was he so good at that made the issues he backed successful? James
0: Asbury Arnold, he went by J.A., sometimes he went by Pappy Arnold, was a really interesting character who grew up on a frontier farm in Illinois in the late 19th century, and uh, and then went to work for the railroads and ultimately found himself moving around the country, finally settled in Texas, uh, and, and then from there went to work as kind of an organizer of business associations. He was a a crucial figure in the creation of the Texas Businessmen's Association which was an important lobbying organization for business in the early part of the 20th century in Texas. Um, And uh, he was uh, just an extraordinarily creative activist. He was someone who learned how to mobilize politically by watching and to some degree interacting with the radical farmers movements of that day that were happening all around him. Growing up on the frontier, moving from community to community with the railroads, ending up in Texas in the first decade of the 20th century, he had a lot of exposure to the Farmers Alliance, the Texas Farmers Union, and other organizations like this that were really steeped in the populist tradition, and that had a particular way of doing politics that we now think of as grassroots politics. So part of what makes Arnold such a fascinating figure is here's a guy who spent his whole life working on behalf of organized business and and on behalf of some very rich people, um, but who learned his ways of doing politics, his styles of political engagement, even very specific techniques of mobilizing grassroots participation in politics from people on the other side of the political spectrum.
1: And was he successful? Um, are, there, are there He was successful in... Mobilization, but were there things that he succeeded on uh, in, in the policy realm did he did he meet his policy objectives
0: I, He had a lot of failures and, and, and a few successes. This was someone who sort of uh, scuffled his whole life trying to trying to um, win victories for uh, for the causes he believed in which were generally the causes of of business um, and uh, and for a long time in in the in the 20s, he worked for uh, something called the Southern Tariff Association, trying to trying to get together farm producers and especially um, processor people in the farm processing uh, sector, um, you know, agricultural processors who worked, for example, making oil or or, or um, processing hides and so on, trying to organize them to demand inclusion in the tariff schedule, to to uh, get tariff protection for their products. Um, That was generally a failure. He claimed some credit for getting some products included in the 1921 tariff, but he was not a super uh, successful organizer up to that point. Uh, But he, he had one shining moment where he does seem to have been very influential, and that was the Revenue Act of 1926, which included the largest cut in the top tax rate in American history. Arnold's role in that was to organize grassroots what he called tax leagues or tax clubs that were basically local associations led by small town farm mortgage bankers. Most of them in the south, but they also uh, they had a particular concentration in Texas, but they also had a, a very large number of clubs in Iowa uh, and and scattered clubs throughout the Midwest to protest on behalf of people even richer than themselves. These clubs got together to demand cuts on in the top rates of income tax that almost no one in the tax clubs themselves would have to face. Um, Arnold was very successful at mobilizing these people and, and uh, seems to have had some success in swaying a couple of critical congressional votes uh, in ways that actually did bring about some very big tax cuts for some very rich people.
1: One of the, the themes that runs throughout the book is is the, the the funny common cause that's often formed between groups that we might not expect to come together. And, and in thinking about this, I wonder if you talk a little bit about Vivian Kellums and, and how she fits into this story. She um, sort of comes next in your your array of colorful characters. So who was she? And and how did she fit into this this larger larger narrative that you tell?
0: Vivian Kellams is another one of my favorite characters from this this history. She really is was an amazing amazing person. Um, Vivian Kellams was uh, an industrialist. She uh, had a career um, manufacturing what were called cable grips in Connecticut, which were devices basically for gripping and moving slippery metal cables, uh, which proved very useful uh, in the Navy, um, proved very useful in the electrical industry, and she had a lot of contracts with public utilities and, and with the federal government for her, her product. But Kellams was also a lifelong activist. She had been raised uh, in Oregon by a, a father who was a preacher and a mother who was a suffrage activist. And she was a, a teenager at the time women got the vote, uh, but it made a, the movement made a, a big impression on her. Um, So later on in her life, during the Second World War, she uh, became very active in the National Women's Party, campaigned for the Equal Rights Amendment, and uh, spent much of her life campaigning for the rights of women, uh, and single women in particular. She also, during the Second World War, decided that the income tax was the root of all evil, and focused a lot of her efforts on taking the militant tactics she had learned from older suffrage activists and applying them to the cause of getting the income tax repealed. So, for example, she used to, she used to speak a lot about uh, older activists who had modeled civil disobedience for her, uh, who went and got arrested in front of the White House demanding the vote for women. Um, that made a big impression on kellens. And, and uh, so in 1944, she announced she was no longer going to pay income tax and, and uh, decided to commit civil disobedience against the income tax. And at several different times in her life, she initiated campaigns of civil disobedience in protest against the federal taxation of income and wealth.
1: The, the, the common cause does, doesn't end there. And, and in some ways, it's what takes us up through the 1970s and 1980s, and and these these similar policy uh, claims uh, that that aren't necessarily solved in an earlier period come back to us. And and in Chapter 7, you you title that chapter Strange Strange Bedfellows, and you highlight some of the the alliances during that period between anti-war liberals and fiscal conservatives. And this is where Grover Norquist enters into the story, uh, a name unlike maybe the first two, that many people would recognize but but might not know his full story um so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about norquist and and in particular about the varied political education uh that he had uh coming up in his career and also the the renaissance of the estate tax repeal that he was at the center of absolutely grover norquist is a fascinating
0: man i I, i've never had the opportunity to meet him but um uh, i've read a lot about him and 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 he's played a really important role in the revival of the grassroots anti tax right in the late twentieth century and and uh and really its institutionalization in the, in the twenty first century um norquist uh came up in the in the in the sixties and seventies he uh he graduated from harvard in nineteen seventy eight right around the time that um uh, some of your listeners may remember the the property tax revolt was in the headlines in the United States and uh, in particular property taxpayers in California were up in arms about their high property tax burdens and the, uh, the voters of California in that summer passed a ballot initiative called Proposition 13 which was a uh, state constitutional amendment that limited the property tax and limited the ability of local governments in California to tax. Well, that was a very inspiring event. It was seen at the time as kind of a a bellwether of change. California had until then been seen as a very liberal state. And uh, activists uh, across the country, including a lot of activists in Massachusetts, like Grover Norquist, took particular inspiration from it. So Norquist, immediately on graduating from Harvard, went to work for the National Taxpayers Union as an organizer traveling around the country trying to foment grassroots rebellions against taxation, trying to kind of ride the momentum that had been initiated by this California Constitutional Amendment campaign. Norquist's subsequent career is really interesting, too. He, he's, he's done a lot of things in his life. He... he uh, um, Went back to graduate school. He was an important player in the college of Republicans, and he's been a very important activist in the Republican Party. Um, but one of the one of the more unusual things that he did in the 1980s he got very involved with the with uh, uh, providing assistance to various anti communist guerrilla movements in the Third World, and especially in Angola. And Norquist spent a lot of time. Uh, traveling back and forth from the United States to Angola, and in the course of his travels, he he spent a lot of time with revolutionaries there who had been trained as Marxist revolutionaries, uh, knew a lot about guerrilla warfare, and found themselves uh, in fighting a guerrilla war against a nominally Marxist regime uh, in Angola. And uh, Norquist really Seems to have it seems to have made a big impression on him. People who knew him at the time talk about the the lessons he said he was taking away from the experience, and um, and uh, it really seems to have shaped his vision of what a taxpayers' movement could do or be in the United States. Uh, so for for a while, he would talk unabashedly about the idea of grassroots tax protesters being being American revolutionaries and fighting against the American welfare state. Uh, in, in, in some ways metaphorically like the ways that uh, revolutionaries had fought against uh, colonial states and then Marxist uh, regimes in, uh, in Angola and in other parts of Africa.
1: It's not surprising then you, you towards the end of the book, you, you touch on the Tea Party and, and try to make a little bit of sense of, of how the Tea Party as a social movement also connects back to these earlier time periods. But in the interest of time, I wonder if I can just sort of, as a way of wrapping up, talk a little bit about your conclusion. Um, In that conclusion, you say, and I quote, the choice to to pursue universalistic benefits for all rich people by means of public grassroots lobbying campaigns is puzzling. The solution to the puzzle is tradition. What do you mean by this? It seems to get to kind of what the, the, the essence of your book is all about. What is, what is that solution uh, uh, that you found?
0: The, the, the really puzzling thing about these movements is that, that they're not the way that rich people usually get benefits from the American tax system. The kind of normal mode of politics, and this is familiar from, from generations of political scientists who've studied lobbying, um, If one has a lot of resources and one wants to protect those resources from taxation in the United States, uh, there are a lot of other ways to do it, and and, you know, lobbying your uh, representative for a particular tax break for your firm or for your industry. Or there are some notorious cases in which individuals and even uh, families and even particular individuals got provisions written into the Internal Revenue Code that applied only to them to shelter some of their, their uh, income or assets from taxation. And that's sort of the, the common mode of lobbying for elite tax cuts in the United States. So the real puzzle about these rich people's movements is that they take a, what I'm calling here a more universalistic approach, meaning that they're not just looking out for themselves or their industry, but they're publicly making claims on behalf of all rich people. That's really unusual, and, and uh, it, given given how many other political avenues are available to them, it's really surprising. When I say that the, the, uh, the solution to this puzzle is tradition, what I mean is that people would not engage in this kind of politics, in this style of politics, if they hadn't been taught it by somebody. One of the crucial lessons of this study for me is that this style of politics we think of as the grassroots movement actually consists of a very specific set of skills that's kind of been passed down from one activist to the next. And many of these particular tactics that these activists used, many of their policy proposals, their very specific policy proposals, get handed down from one generation to the next by identifiable individuals including some of these really colorful characters like Pabby Arnold or Vivian Kellams. This I think can shed a lot of light on the Tea Party. I think a lot of the tax-related demands that have been put forward in the name of the Tea Party, if we look at them closely, turn out to be very old policy proposals. And in fact, they're policy proposals that have their roots in, for example, the 1927 platform of the American Taxpayers League. That was Pappy Arnold's organization. Or the 1951 proposal put forward by Vivian Kellams for a constitutional amendment that would abolish all taxation of income and wealth. Or... Some 1978 proposals put forward by the National Taxpayers Union and other organizations for a constitutional balanced budget amendment that would also limit income taxation. Uh, These are old proposals, and uh, and they've been handed down. Uh, And the fact of that tradition helps us to explain this really puzzling pattern, which is why people sometimes mobilize on behalf of all the rich instead of just on behalf of themselves or their industry or
1: their region. As I mentioned at the start, I really enjoyed the book. I, I, I strongly recommend it. I think it's a, it's just a very interesting read. What's next for you? Uh, are you continuing to do research in this area? Or is there something else that's uh, going to be coming up in the future for you? What can we, have, what can we look forward to?
0: Well, there, there are a couple of different directions I'd like to take this this research next. This, this I think about this book in some ways as a sequel to an earlier book I wrote called The Permanent Tax Revolt, which was a study of the property tax rebellions of 19, the 1960s and especially the 1970s. And I got very interested through through that study in some of the deeper roots of the anti-tax movements in the United States. And so what this book allowed me to do was to to dig deeper in the archives, look at some precursors, for the movements of the 70s that I had that I had previously studied, um, one thing I'd like to do uh, eventually is is to keep digging. I actually have come to the conclusion that a lot of these movements uh, have even deeper roots. And one of the lessons of this study for me was that uh, history has a lot to teach us about how political styles and political tactics take shape. So I'd be very interested to pursue this study with with some follow up research on on. Uh, tax-related protest movements of the late 19th century and, and, and earlier, but the main the main direction I'm pursuing now, actually, and and uh, the, the the other direction I'm pursuing this, is to look at uh, look at the other side of the coin, um, and and that is to uh, try to understand the conditions under which Americans sometimes approve of taxation. This is a a, a really critical question. It's there's a um, I know you've done a podcast with Vanessa Williamson who's doing outstanding research on this question and it's an area we really need to know more about and and I'd like to um, contribute some more studies to, to that vein as well to try to understand in the contemporary United States, what are properties of tax policy that make it more acceptable to voters? What ways of paying our taxes do we prefer? And under what conditions are we actually most willing to step up and pay the price of government? Um, it's, a, it's a critical question, and, and uh, it's, it's um, uh, I think, going to remain a timely one.
1: Yeah, well, I look forward to that. And, and until we have those new publications, we can all read Rich People's Movements, Grassroots Campaigns to Untax the 1%, which was published this year by Oxford University Press. Um, I hope that everyone has the chance to read it and, and go out and, and learn a lot from it. Isaac, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.